Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the first chapter of Department of Death, a Nick Hoffman mystery by Lev Raphael. It is read by local actor Kelly Ventura. Department of Death was published by Perseverance Press on April 9th, 2021, and is available for purchase. If you would like to help support this podcast, listen for details in the closing of this episode on how to become a patron and get some fun perks. When I started teaching at the State University of Michigan over 20 years ago, I had three strikes against me. I was a bibliographer and had published a guide to everything ever written by or about Edith Wharton in all languages, a book that anyone studying or writing about Wharton could consult. But despite being indispensable... Bibliographies are dismissed as grunt work by most people in the ivory tower because they're actually useful. Academics and the administrators who give them promotions prefer monographs, abstruse, narrowly focused, jargony books that nobody reads and that are way overpriced. Worse than that, I enjoyed teaching basic composition, something my colleagues found suspicious and even perverse. I was what academics call a spousal hire. I got the job because the university wanted my partner, Stefan, who was making a name for himself as an author. Topping that off, I was a New York Jew living in a provincial, waspy, middle-of-the-road town. I guess that's more than three. Things only deteriorated from there. A cloud of crime slowly formed and enveloped me on our bucolic Midwestern campus. I had been involved in more than my fair share of murders, which should have been none, zero, given that I'd never been mugged growing up on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Was I jinxed? The victim of bad karma? Or some kind of death magnet like Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote? Whatever the cause, my very presence seemed to damage the State University of Michigan's brand. University administrators invariably eyed me with suspicion and even hostility. Despite all of that, I'd somehow risen from the very bottom of my department to the very top. I was now the interim chair of the English and Creative Writing Department, after a series of bizarre events that, as usual, involved, you guessed it, a murder. On campus, other faculty were calling my academic home DOD, Department of Death, due to its high mortality rate. I couldn't imagine what they were calling me. But being their chair opened me up to a whole new set of pressures and new problems I could never have imagined dealing with. I'd only been elevated to my new position for a week that fall semester when the associate dean for summer programs in our College of Humanities suddenly appeared at my office without warning first thing Monday morning. I'd met Don Lovelace only a few times, always in large informal gatherings, and every time she made me feel acutely uncomfortable. Slim, short, pale, with a helmet of thick black curls and a heart-shaped face that made her look like a Roaring Twenties flapper. She typically wore severe dark gray suits and sensible black shoes, but her necklaces were big, extravagant, and sometimes bejeweled. Today she had on a heavy chain of thick interlocking gold and silver rings and wore a black Chanel shoulder bag. Her husband was director of SUM's fundraising unit, the Office of Strategic Evolution a fancy name for what most universities called development. Maybe his fundraising work had rubbed off on her, because Lovelace herself had the air of a corporate human resources type whose job was firing people with maximum speed and minimal fuss, a kind of fixer who made problems and the people who caused them disappear. 
This was someone who spoke for the powers that be, never herself. So her friendliness, if you could call it that, wasn't exactly fake, but felt like something she'd acquired at a weekend workshop. I was actually surprised that her secretary hadn't set up a meeting over in Lovelace's own office, since she was higher in rank than I was, and I had no idea why she wanted to see me anyway. She entered briskly, trailing an expensive perfume that was a mix of roses, vanilla, and patchouli. This was something I recognized as Killian, because my cousin Sharon, an ex-model, sometimes wore it. Now, they say if you live in Michigan long enough, you develop the Michigan nose. Because we're surrounded by Great Lakes and all that water somehow messes up your sinuses and leaves you frequently congested. But the opposite had happened to me, and my sense of smell had oddly become more refined. Without mentioning my unexpected accession to the chairmanship, or even the lovely view of stately old maple trees from my windows, Lovely shook my hand and sat down. Nick, we need your help. We need you to step up. And she smiled as if she had just offered me a wonderful gift. I could feel my mouth going dry. There was something ominous in her request. Lovelace was going to ask me to do something I know I wouldn't want to do. I was sure of it. Nick, we need you in Sweden. What? Why? The summer program that Victor Dahlberg has been teaching this coming June. I knew what she meant, but didn't understand why she was recruiting me, of all people. That four-week summer program was based in the old university town of Lund, in southern Sweden, and was very popular for a number of reasons. The area was green and beautiful. Students were thrilled by how well Swedes spoke English. Lund was a madly scenic small college town for biking and strolling, and Dahlberg's familiar and personal connections to Sweden had made the program unique. He had decided to retire, sick of the craziness in our department, and who could blame him? But Victor taught film courses, I said, and screenwriting. I've never done either one, and I've never taught abroad before. Lovely shrugged all that off. There's nothing to it, and you can make over the program however you like. We'll give you carte blanche. You're a fan of Swedish crime fiction, and you've been studying Swedish. How did she know these things? It was obvious to anyone paying attention that more and more surveillance cameras were appearing on buildings all over campus. But who was watching all this video? And was the university using facial recognition software? Could the rumors about a secret SUM surveillance committee be true? Was everyone's email being read? Were we all being monitored while we worked? And why was the faculty so supine and unconcerned? I sometimes thought it might be more than just self-absorption in their teaching and research. There was something narcotic about SUM's enormous Verdant campus, with a mix of over 600 buildings dating from the late 19th century to a few years ago. It was a carefully curated ensemble spread across several thousand acres, linked by curving paths and crisscrossed with straight business-like streets as wide as avenues. In springtime, lilacs, tulips, irises, daffodils, forsythia, bloomed in stunning profusion, and in the late fall, the cascade of harvest-colored leaves from towering maples was like theatrical snow. Entering this domain, no matter what was troubling you, could have a similar effect to crossing a quadrangle of a venerable European college adorned with stained-glass spires and gargoyles. The campus of 7,000 acres had a particular kind of beauty and gravitas that perhaps inspired inertia. Why fight anything? Why not just enjoy academic privileges and pleasures? How else could you explain the fact that nobody had challenged the provost, Mary Glinka, about the mounting assaults on our privacy? 
When pressed for answers, she had only said to reporters, If you've got nothing to hide, then you've got nothing to fear. And I would urge everyone in our university community that if you see something, say something. See what? Say what? And to whom? What were we supposed to be on guard for? What was the crisis? Were agents of a rival university scheming to destroy us? My administrative assistant, Celine Robichaud, had told me that the surveillance committee was supposedly empowered to have faculty, staff, or students arrested if they posed any kind of threat to anyone on campus and was in direct contact with the Department of Homeland Security in Washington. But who determined what constituted a threat? What were the criteria? And why was it apparently called the Committee of Public Safety when the French namesake was responsible for the execution of thousands of people during the Reign of Terror? Nick, Lovelace said, snapping her fingers to get my attention. You're the ideal candidate to take over for Victor. I didn't believe her. Who else have you asked? She smiled and examined her beautifully manicured nails, holding her left hand flat in the palm of her right, then the reverse. Not answering me told me that she'd put the squeeze on other possible candidates already and had been rebuffed. That made sense, since not everyone liked teaching abroad. The stipend wasn't that great if you took a spouse or family along. Students could easily go rogue in a country where the legal drinking age was lower than it was in Michigan. And most professors treasured their long summer vacations away from the classroom, even if they weren't writing or researching a book. It's an important program, she murmured. A successful program. In a time of collapsing enrollments for the humanities, Victor had foresight. He'd wisely designed the program as two weeks shorter than most of SUM's other summer programs based in Europe. Even with the high cost of living in Sweden, the program was more affordable because of the shorter length. And because there was just one professor running it, himself. The traditional six-week programs taught by two professors were on their way out despite efforts by floundering and short-sighted department chairs to keep them alive. But Don, I've just made interim chair. I need time to settle in, and I'm not prepared to teach abroad next summer. There's not enough time for me to prepare, and I have to be on campus in the summer to work on the budget. I didn't know a lot about my duties as department chair, but I knew that much. More than that, redesigning Victor's program to fit my teaching interests and giving up a huge chunk of my summer vacation wasn't remotely appealing. Sure, I wanted to go to Sweden someday after I felt comfortable speaking the language, which I enjoyed studying, and then only on my own timetable. I'm not gifted with languages like Mayor Pete of South Bend who taught himself Norwegian just to be able to read his favorite author in his native tongue. Nick, you're the one we need. Lovelace's bright blue eyes fixed me as if she wanted to put me into a trance. There was something unnerving about her single-minded determination. She clearly would not negotiate. Despite her surface charm, this was a summons from the College of Humanities, the Summer Abroad Office, and who knows, maybe even SUM's provost and president, too. Summer programs were very profitable for the university and burnished the image of SUM as a global institution. Students loved them, typically saying they were the best part of their college years. But the programs were a lot of work for faculty, and even taking over a program that was already established would demand preparation, organization, time spent recruiting students, and holding informational meetings. I'd never been tempted before, and I certainly wasn't now, given that I had barely begun to grasp what my new position entailed. I really think I need to understand being department chair before taking on something that big, I said. You need to demonstrate flexibility and support, Lovelace brought out tersely. Who am I supporting? 
students, first of all, then your colleagues, your peers. I'd never liked the word peers, because when I first encountered it in elementary school, it was associated with the House of Lords, and afterwards, I always absurdly thought of 18th century powdered wigs and snuff boxes. It was a kind of brain glitch. You're worried about enrollments, I said. A successful summer program generated buzz and made people take more classes in the department and college that housed it. If nobody offered the Swedish program, that could have a small ripple effect. Isn't everybody? Well, no. SUM was marketing itself heavily and successfully in India, charging those students three times what in-state students paid. The Indian students clustered in engineering, business, pre-med, and mathematics. Because they spoke and read English fluently, some of them might take a course or two in the humanities, beyond required ones, but not many. That was never their mission. These foreign students weren't just good for the university's general fund. They were having a huge impact on the economy of Michiganopolis. They were big spenders when it came to cars, clothes, restaurants, and real estate. Their advent had led to a construction boom, with high-rent apartment buildings with ludicrous names like Mountaintop sprouting up all over town. You're asking a lot, I said. Not really. Loyalty shouldn't be difficult. I think that was supposed to sting, but it didn't. Lovelace rose and surveyed my large office. Our new three-story building, Shattenkirk Hall, was white and sterile inside and out, like the grim 1960s headquarters of a small pharmaceutical company. One of the only buildings on campus that seemed out of place, it was the gift of an alumnus who'd won the Nobel Prize and had some very clear ideas about architecture. The Board of Trustees had happily taken his bequest and allowed his vision to blossom. It gave me the creeps. To counter the coldness, I'd had the walls of my office painted apricot, changed the metal blinds to cherry wood, laid down a black and orange key rug, and hung striking Matisse prints on the wall. It was an oasis of color. You know, Nick, you really have to move the chair's office ASAP. I bristled. What's wrong with staying here? The whole department had been moved from another building over the previous summer and I was not interested in repeating the process so soon, even if the chair's office was just down the hall from mine. And maybe I was a little superstitious, too. Moving into the office of someone who had been murdered seemed like the opening scene of a horror movie. I assumed it had been cleared of all its personal effects. But what if something had been overlooked? That would be eerie. I had access to all his digital files. Wasn't that enough? This reading of Department of Death was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. You can learn more about this book and the author on his website, levraphael.com. If you would like to help us be able to continue to bring you more mystery fun, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Even $1 a month can make a difference. We also have some cool merchandise available on Redbubble. Check the show notes for the link and for the links to our websites and social media. For more mystery podcast fun, check out the Queer Writers of Crime podcast, which features LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. Host Brad Shreve only scratches the surface discussing their writing techniques and focuses more on who they are as individuals and what makes them tick. Each show opens with Justine, a bibliophile like no other, giving her weekly book recommendation. 
You can find Queer Writers of Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter for bonus content. If you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it, as this helps make us easier to find for others. Until next time, this is your announcer wishing you a life full of mystery. Mm -hmm.